Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 16. We're continuing in Acts today, the great account of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And this is one of many places in the Old Testament that looks forward to that coming event and reality. It's still true in the church today. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says, the, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who, who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 10. Acts 10, we'll begin with verse 24, and we'll back up to 23b um, and read to the end of the chapter. Speaking of Peter, it says, The next day he rose 
and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house, the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you, where is the first indication in the Bible that uh, the kingdom of God was going to include not just Israelites, but also Gentiles. I wonder what you might say. You might think, well, of course, during Jesus' ministry, didn't he, he heal a Canaanite woman's daughter? 
Um, he, even, he even healed the servant of a Roman centurion, like Cornelius, a different centurion. And those were Gentiles. But then, of course, hopefully you'd remember that the inclusion of the Gentiles was not a novel idea when Jesus interacted with uh, that woman and that man. It was clearly prophesied in places like Isaiah 42, which we just read. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Uh, or as in uh, Psalm 86, which we sang a little earlier, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. But then uh, I expect you'd, you'd eventually think, well, wait a second, we just finished going through Genesis not long ago, and it must have come up a million times, Genesis 12, verse 3, that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then once you got back to Genesis, you'd probably think, okay, I see what he's doing. This has got to be a trick question, right? And so just to be on the safe side, I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Genesis 1-1, because that's probably the answer he's looking for, and I would say you nailed it, because the reach of God's plan of redemption is as broad as the reach of God's creation. That's part of the point of today's passage in Acts, that Christ's salvation reaches to the whole earth because Christ's sovereignty reaches to the whole earth. And in fact, you can't have that salvation without that sovereignty. Now, that does not mean that every individual person in the world is going to be saved. That's not. That's a, a different discussion. What it means is that God is saving people everywhere. It is saving power reaches as far as his creating power all over the world. And not just that, but he is bringing people from all over the world to unite them together through the Holy Spirit in Christ, the one Savior of the world. And that is what is being depicted, really enacted, here in Acts chapter 10. Which we're going to look at in three parts this morning. First, Christ's unfolding plan, verses 24 to 33. Second is Christ's universal power, verses 34 to 43. And then Christ's united people, verses 44 to 48. So Christ's unfolding plan, Christ's universal power, and Christ's united people. All right, so Christ's unfolding plan. Let's see here. Um, the first ten verses largely are repeating what's already happened in the first half of the chapter, because... Peter and Cornelius have had these visions separately that have now brought them together at Cornelius' house, but, but now it's time for each of them to fill the other in on the other half of the story. Uh, last time we saw how God was building a bridge between the Jewish and Gentile worlds, between the Old and New Covenants, a bridge uh, for Peter, remember, between knowing and acting on those things. And in verse 23, remember that Peter took the first step onto that bridge. He put his weight on it by inviting the messengers of Cornelius to stay with him overnight as his guests uh, there in Joppa. Now, that was already a little unusual, because you wouldn't typically expect Gentiles to come and spend the night in a Jewish home, to be invited into a Jewish home. But more than one writer points out that that, that that part is a lot less surprising than what happens next to have a Jew stay in a Gentile home. 
Because um, when, when the Gentile comes to the Jewish home, the Jewish family can control that environment a lot more easily. They can stay ceremonially clean much more easily. And the Gentile, of course, doesn't have to worry about cleanliness rules. It's like if you're not gluten-free and you go to a house of somebody who's gluten-free, well, you don't have to worry, and they don't have to worry so much. But if they come to your house, they have to be a lot more cautious, right, um, about what might have contaminated the food that you're serving, things like that. For, there are opportunities for a Jew and a Gentile's home all around to become unclean uh, in various ways. And, uh, of course, a lot of that difficulty came not really from the Old Testament. There's no law in the Old Testament that says a Jew can't spend the night in a Gentile's home. Um, it came sort of from the accumulated traditions for how those cleanliness laws were applied and practiced in Jewish culture. Um, so in the end, as far as Jews eating or lodging with Gentiles, what it really came down to is we just don't do that. One person puts it, it just wasn't done. Um, and there's a very strong sense that we just, this just isn't done. And so, inviting them into where he was staying, Peter was setting his foot on that bridge, but it's really in what comes next that he kind of takes a deep breath and walks all the way across to the other side. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And this is significant, that Cornelius doesn't expect only a message for himself. This is something that he wants the people close to him also to hear, to know. This is a a good picture for us of godly spiritual leadership. If you are the head of a household, then it is your responsibility to gather your family, to hear the word of God, not just uh, bring them to church on Sunday either, although that's part of it, but day by day leading your family to read God's word, to pray, to gather in his presence, And and the reason for this is that your relationship with God is not merely a solo relationship. You're to lead lovingly and gently the people close to you to hear what God is saying, not just to you, but to your household. That's the way that God deals with us. He deals with us together as families. You think about the blessing that came to these friends and family of Cornelius because he stepped up to take the lead and to give them this opportunity to hear God's word and think what a blessing they would have missed if Cornelius hadn't taken that initiative to gather them. And if you think, well, well, that's what kind of super spiritual men do. Maybe people who are really godly and kind of have it all together, they can lead their families and family worship or something like that not average guys like me. Well, the example of Cornelius is also kind of encouraging in that regard, too, and takes away that excuse because the very next verse, you can see pretty clearly that Cornelius did not quite have it all figured out yet, did he? Because he tries to fall on the ground and worship Peter when he sees him. Uh, His expectations are obviously running very high. An angel has told him to send for this man, and so he's rightly expecting a divine message from Peter But he's so ready for that divine message that that his instinct is to treat Peter as a divine messenger, which he is not. And that actually turns into Peter's first opportunity uh, to teach something here to this Gentile man who's coming from a different frame of reference about what a messenger from the gods might be like. 
And Peter lifts him up and he says, Stand up, I too am a man. I'm not the one who's going to save you, in other words. I'm not the one you need to worship, but I'm here to tell you about him. And remember those two miracles that we said were kind of setting the stage for uh, Peter's work here in, back in Lydda and Joppa, back at the end of chapter 9, the healing of Aeneas and Tabitha. In both cases, you remember there was a, a great difference between the way, the, the way the, that Jesus did his miracles during his ministry, which was under his own authority, by his own word, and, the way, and, what, and what Peter did in those miracles. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, he said. He, he prays and then says, Tabitha, arise. He's, he's, again, pointing the attention away from himself and towards Christ. And we talked then about how uh, we have to be aware of not wanting to be the Savior that other people need. Point away from ourselves to the Savior that other people need. Peter's just the messenger. The content of the message is Jesus Christ. Peter is the servant. Jesus is the Lord. So Peter uh, goes into Cornelius' house, and there he finds this this whole congregation ready-made that Christ has assembled there to listen to him preach, which is pretty amazing. Think what an encouragement this would have been to Peter, uh, that through no effort of his own, the Lord Jesus has, has simply prepared this whole group of people who are ripe to hear the gospel. They are ready to listen and respond. This is a Great situation for a preacher to be in. Um, Of course, uh, we shouldn't think of that as so unusual because that's what we're trusting Christ to do in every local church, in every corporate worship service, really, although he usually does that through much more ordinary methods. But still, don't forget that fundamentally it is Christ who gathers his church. It is Christ who who has gathered the people of Resurrection OPC into this local body. It is Christ who has gathered this congregation in this building this morning to hear his word and to worship him. The first heading, remember, is Christ's unfolding plan, because we've got to remember it is Christ who has taken Peter over here and Cornelius over here, and he has thrust them together. Like uh, when you take two magnets with the same pole facing one another, and you press them together, you, you... This is what Christ is doing, something that never would have happened naturally. But Christ has done it to assemble these people in one place so that his message can be proclaimed and his purpose can be fulfilled. Uh, Verse 28, we find that Peter has uh, really internalized the meaning of his vision. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And uh, the word unlawful there that he uses uh, doesn't mean so much against the law of Moses, um, but rather that, that idea I was talking about earlier, that it just isn't done. Uh, several writers use the word taboo, that there was just this instinct that would say that what Peter is doing is shocking, that it doesn't feel right. But, Peter says, God has shown me. God has shown me a truth that contradicts and transforms that, that instinct that I bring from my culture a culture that kind of world around me is telling me 
just to feel naturally like this is wrong, but God has shown me that it's right. This is kind of a broad application in this passage. To, To be critical through the scriptures, to be reflecting, thinking about what are our natural instincts of what, what kind of the world around us, our culture has trained us to think as right or wrong and to critique that on the basis of the scripture, to submit those instincts, those kind of intuitions to the scrutiny of the word of God. Say, is this, is this really wrong? Or is this something my culture has told, told me to feel is wrong? And that's, that can be um, even, uh, it can be especially tricky with, with things that are more feeling-oriented than thinking-oriented. Because often the way the world works is to make us feel certain things. And the strategy of the evil one is to get us not to reflect on them, not to think about them, but just to, to go with what we feel. And our feelings are always being shaped either by the word of God or by the voices and images around us. We need to be aware of this. God has shown me, Peter says, that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so now I'm here Verse 29. And so why don't you tell me, he says, why you sent for me? So Peter's opening up to Cornelius to share uh, his side. And so Cornelius fills Peter in on the other side, on the story of his vision. And I love the way that he concludes in verse 33 when he says, Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What a clear-headed and soft-hearted wise and humble and attentive way to approach this special moment for hearing the word of God. I think that all of us, when we're getting ready for a Sunday, think about what if this was our attitude towards corporate worship and the preaching of the word. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that he has to say to us today. What if we could be that clear-headed and soft-hearted and wise and humble and attentive? That is the way to listen to the preaching of God's word. And I say that as much to myself as to anybody else. And trust me, there are many, um, so there, there are very sobering and sharp applications here for preachers that I'm not going to get into. I'm not trying to elevate myself personally, uh, since I happen to be the usual preacher in this particular pulpit. No, like, like Peter, I too am a man. I too am a listener. And, and what we're all trying to do here is to listen to Christ, to listen to his voice in the scriptures. But that is why we all need to cultivate this attitude in our hearts. So often we can come to worship as just part of our routine. And expect to get through it because it's just what I do on Sunday. Sometimes we can come to corporate worship with a spirit of, of, uh, of suspicion or uh, just a, a critical instinct where we're on guard against what we're going to hear. And we ought to be Bereans. We ought to be searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. But on the other hand, we want to make sure that we are having soft hearts to hear what Christ is saying in his word. We are all here in the presence of God to hear what he commands to be proclaimed. That's the way that God is going to make us grow. That's how the Holy Spirit is going to work among us, by and with his word. That's how he prepares us to receive it, to be fertile soil for it to grow and bear fruit. Well, this is obviously a wide opening for uh, Peter and 
it's neat. We get this unique opportunity in verse 34 to hear Peter be able to kind of start from square one and explain the gospel to Gentiles who, who they do already believe generally in God, but they've never heard the message of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to ask, where does Peter start? And he could start anywhere. And this can be the hardest part, right? You want to share the gospel with somebody, but how, how do I start? Where do you begin? There's so many places you could begin. But Peter starts like this. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That no partiality idea uh, might remind us of another passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 3, where Paul is speaking about how the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. But when Paul says there is no distinction, he's getting at kind of the same reality Peter's talking about from the opposite direction. For Paul, there's no distinction for all equally have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then how does he go on? What else is true for all, whether Jew or Gentile? Jew and Gentile have both fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. But they're all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. It's the one way of salvation, Paul is saying in Romans, for all people. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 36 here, Peter um, does note that uh, God sent the word about this global salvation to Israel in particular through a Savior uh, who was particularly an Israelite. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. But then immediately, what does he say in the parentheses? He says, he, Jesus, is Lord of all. So Jesus came, as the incarnation, Jesus came as an Israelite to fulfill the Old Testament uh, identity and promises to Israel and duties of Israel. But he did that as the Lord of all, entering into that particular place and time and ethnic identity so that he could be the savior of the world. So the good news of peace is good news for all, not just Israel, because Jesus is Lord of all, not just Israel. And the implication is Jesus is Lord over you and your part of the world too, Cornelius. And that means that his salvation is for you and your part of the world as well. The next thing Peter gives is a basic summary of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And you notice he, uh, what he emphasizes here. He emphasizes Jesus' Holy Spiritual anointing. Remember, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church because he, first of all, is the Spirit-anointed one. He is anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit for his messianic ministry. Um, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so he emphasizes uh, Christ's Holy Spiritual anointing, his supernatural acts, next his uh, cursed death on the cross, verse 39, his resurrection from the dead in verse 40, particularly his uh, resurrection appearances. Uh, Peter's kind of saying, why should you listen to me? Why do I have anything to say about this? I'm not telling you this because I just decided that others might be interested. For, first of all, I'm an eyewitness to these things. But again, I'm not just passing on what I happened to see. No, I am here because Jesus commissioned me. 
Jesus commissioned me to do this. He called me and the other apostles. He commanded us, he says, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So you look how quickly Peter has worked his way then from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. Once again, keeping in sharp focus the universal lordship, the universal sovereignty of Christ, his global authority. Which remember that the second coming is as much a part of the gospel as the first coming. Um, judge of the living of the living and the dead, everybody, including you and me, Peter's saying. And if he's judge of the living and the dead, that far-reaching authority, then verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's far-reaching forgiveness. Far-reaching forgiveness because Jesus has such far-reaching authority. Everyone who believes, not just Jews, everybody. Before we go on, we just need to pause and make sure that we get this, this crystal clear statement of the good news. This, folks, is the gospel that Peter has just stated for us here. That, first of all, Jesus is Lord of all. That Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Savior who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, and he's the judge of all who will return to judge the world one day. And that means that if you personally, individually, if you want to experience blessing and hope on that day for your everlasting future instead of curse and despair because of your sin, because of the things that you have done wrong and the ways you've disobeyed God, And what do you need to do? What are you being called to do? To receive the free gift of the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus. You receive, not by working hard to earn it, but by simply believing in what Jesus has done for you. That's the free offer of the gospel that God holds out to every man and woman and boy and girl within earshot of the message. And he's holding it out to each and every one of you this day. Believe it. Receive it. This forgiveness of sins through faith in the Lord and judge of all who died and rose to save us. That is the great burden that Peter carried to the Gentiles and was carried throughout the world in the time of Acts. It is the message that Christ is sending out into the world today. It's the only hope. for you in this life and forever. And I'll let that opportunity pass you by. I love the way in verse 44, there's this direct intrusion of God himself personally into this scene, almost almost interrupting Peter. Really, I think it is interrupting Peter. Peter might have continued, but as soon as these Gentiles hear about the forgiveness of sins offered to them through the Lord Jesus... Peter doesn't ask for some kind of decision. Um, He doesn't even get to the point of inviting these people to some kind of personal response, although clearly that has taken place through the power of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. All he's had time to get out is just the proclamation of the truth. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news message. And then who is the one who responds? Well, it's the Lord who responds. Christ from heaven acts supernaturally. Once again, this time by pouring out the Holy Spirit, 
Very, very similar, the languages, to what happens on the day of Pentecost, right? And really, we should think of this day as an extension, an expansion of Pentecost to the Gentile world. That's the significance of Acts 10. It's, it's, an, there's, it's, it's extending what happened in Acts chapter 2 to more people, to the Gentile world. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And immediately we were reminded why this had to happen through a direct supernatural intervention by Christ. It's because the human agents that are bearing the message were not ready for this. This is not what they were expecting. They were taken totally by surprise. It says the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, even on the Gentiles. Now, we could ask the question, should they have been surprised? And it probably depends on what you mean. Maybe the best answer is just to say that if we were them, we would have been surprised. But we would also have to say that we, like they, should have seen this coming. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them, we read in Isaiah 42, when we read of the servant who was to be a light for the nations. God had told them beforehand, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. All the nations you have made, Psalm 86, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And don't forget, too, the message of the angel to the shepherds at the very beginning of the book of Luke, the night that Jesus was born. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Or what what Simeon said when Jesus was uh, presented at the temple as a baby, when he said, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is a great theme, not just of Acts, but of this uh, two-volume set, Luke and Acts together. They should have seen this coming. It's understandable that they didn't. But the message from the very beginning has been that in Christ, and therefore in Abraham, the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And that's what's happening right here in fulfillment of all those promises, all that expectation. The whole Old Testament is driving towards this moment. God is extending his redemption as far, as broadly as his creation. He is Lord of all, and therefore he is Savior of all. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And we're, we're calling this whole last point Christ's united people. Right? Because you look what's happened here. The Gentiles have received the same spirit as the Jewish Christians. And in response, they're about now to receive the same baptism. A baptism that marks out visibly the members of the covenant community. There is, you remember, one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4. And we're part of that one body with them. We, right now, are part of that same body that Peter and Cornelius and all these others are part of, present tense, and the heavenly assembly, the heavenly worship service around the throne of God, because... We share that one spirit, that one Lord. And this, I think, is the message for us this morning. This same salvation that reached to Cornelius 
has reached far beyond him, far beyond even the known world of Peter's day, and it has reached even as far as our continent and our ears and our hearts because Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of the whole earth, this hemisphere too and that one. And when we reflect with gratitude that I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me, this Gentile about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. We should be reminded by that very love that he is also Lord over me. Jesus is Lord over even me. Because his sovereignty reaches as far as his salvation. And that, of course, should give us yet greater motivation than ever, an eagerness to carry the message of Jesus still further to others who haven't heard so that his kingdom keeps growing as he keeps making his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his universal kingship. He is the Lord over all the earth and you have seated him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You've given him the name that is above every name. You've given him that authority over all things for the church. We thank you that you have brought us in to that great reality through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray you would give us boldness and eagerness to share that message with others and to continue to extend this good news of Christ uh, to those who are yet to hear it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.